0: Hey, Bible readers, I'm Tara Lee Cobble, and I'm your host for the Bible Recap. We've been hovering over the fall of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and we keep dipping in and out of prophecy and narrative to give us the whole lay of the land. Today, we started out in Hosea, another minor prophet who prophesied the demise of Israel. His message was probably intended for both kingdoms, Israel and Judah. During this time, Israel was financially flourishing, or at least the elite were. And their hearts had grown callous to God as they drifted further from compassion and generosity and a humble awareness of who was providing for them. Their sacrifices were empty and they were still worshiping other gods. So God sends his prophet to intervene and here's how he wants Hosea to do it. Marry a prostitute. Excuse me? As we've seen before, God often calls the prophets to personally feel and experience the weight of what they're going to be speaking into. We've seen them getting beaten up on purpose, putting on skits, walking around naked, and now marrying an adulteress. So once again, we see that being a prophet is not a fun calling. God says all this is to reveal what things are like in his relationship with Israel. So the language of this adultery image is woven throughout the book to continue to reveal God and his character to both ancient Israel and to us today. Hosea marries a woman named Gomer, and she gives birth to three kids. The text only clarifies that the first child is his. The second and third children might be from one or more of her lovers. And even the names God tells Hosea to give the two children seem to distance him from them. And of course, this is about far more than just their family. Those names are given to symbolize God's distance from Israel at this point in time. More on that later. In chapter 2, God parallels this story with his love for Israel. His people give themselves up for mere things, as though Yahweh isn't providing for them. So God sets out to thwart their pursuit of idolatry. But God knows that the only thing that will bring lasting change is for his people to actually love him, not just be forced to obey him. He sets out to pursue them all over again to show them how desirable a relationship with him can be. And eventually, Israel's heart will turn back to him and he will override the meaning of their given names to display his love and demonstrate the change in their relationship. Meanwhile, things fall apart in Hosea's relationship with Gomer too. God says to go out and find her. She's apparently living with another man to pay off all her debts and to bring her home and commit to her. Then we move on to the second section of Hosea's prophecies, beginning with chapter four. This section details everything Israel has done wrong so that they're forced to confront it. It's important to remember that Israel was a theocracy and they were in a covenant with God, which they've broken. So they're living under the curse of that covenant and the consequences of their sins are reflected in their political and societal circumstances. It probably feels really natural to draw similar conclusions about countries and governments today But we really have no modern-day equivalent to Israel's relationship with God. And it probably goes without saying, but there's nothing in Scripture indicating that America is the new Israel, regardless whether that sounds like a good thing or a bad thing to you. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. People in this day would often refer to the northern kingdom of Israel collectively as Ephraim, which is one of the ten tribes in the northern kingdom. Hosea uses the word that way 37 times in this short book. It's a lot like how the southern kingdom is collectively called Judah, one of the two tribes in that kingdom. This was probably a helpful way to distinguish Israel as a whole, all 12 tribes, from Israel the kingdom after the split. In 4.6, God tells Israel, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The leaders and elders were commanded to teach the people about Yahweh, but they've dropped the ball for so long that no one knows who God is anymore, much less has a relationship with him. Instead, they've turned to idolatry, and idolatry has turned them into fools. In chapter 5, he turns from addressing all the people and speaks directly to the priests and leaders of Ephraim, and he continues to parallel them with a prostitute. And in 5, 4 through 6, he has an even harsher word for them. He says, you don't know God. He paints a picture of them taking their animals to sacrifice to the God they don't know, not even realizing that he isn't there. And it's probably important for me to clarify, this is poetic imagery. Of course God is technically there, since He's everywhere. But the point of this prophecy is that God's blessing is not present on their sacrifice, and they're clueless about that. In chapters 6 and 7, the people of Israel appear to be seeking God, but they're only seeking relief, and God knows it. He compares their love to the morning dew that evaporates quickly— Imagine someone you love having only a predictably fleeting affection for you. It's crushing. You can't enjoy it even in the moment it seems to be real because you know it's about to vanish. That's how God feels about Israel here. And he reminds them again, I want your hearts, not your bulls. My guide shot was in the naming of the three children in chapter 1, verses 4-9. through On the surface, these names may seem cruel for sure. But if we look closer, they actually paint a picture of the story of our sin and Christ's redemption. Verse 4 says, The Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. In this name, we see that there is sin and it must be punished. Verse 6 says, The Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. In this name, we see that we were without mercy. Verse nine says, the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. In this name, we see that we were not his children. If you put them all together, we see that our sins must be punished. We were without mercy and we were not his children. But then one ten through 2 1 says, In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, in the very place of our brokenness and need, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. He redeems us right where we are. And he reiterates it again in 2.10. Our sin required a punishment. He had mercy on us and he adopted us into his family through the death of Christ and the indwelling of his spirit. He meets us where we are, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Which means he's there with you right now. And he's where the joy is. Are you going on vacation this summer? Don't forget to take us with you. And by us, I mean TBR, because as much as I would love to hang out with you on an all expense paid trip to Croatia, this is much more affordable for you. Whether you're listening to the podcast, watching the episodes on YouTube, or taking a copy of TBR in book form, we want to be the Ruth to your Naomi. We want to go where you go. We want to support you in your daily Bible reading, even on vacation. So don't forget to bring us with you and tag a photo of where you're recapping while on vacation. We'd love to see it. Do you know scripture well enough to tell the difference between inspirational quotes and the Bible? If you'd like to guess along on the new episode of This or That from Way Nation, text quote to 67101. Is it Solomon or is it Instagram? Find out by texting the word quote to 67101.